Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Some of you I know because I grew up here and you remember me <clears throat> running around the aisles playing a game that I called Bible Baseball. Uh, some of you I know because I'm like a fellow who preaches here some. Some of you are my closest friends from college. But however I know you, however I know you, my name is Peter and I um, am sort of on the teaching team here if we have such a thing. I'm also the lead pastor's son. You know, I know it's a little gross. Um, he could, they could have named me anything. It's not like the name was invented. Um, so what's going on with me? Thanks for asking. I am moving to Charlotte, North Carolina a week from today. But if it's like any of the other moves, you won't even notice I'm gone. I'll be back all the time. And so, uh, you know, don't get worried. Um, and uh, so I finished seminary in May-ish. And thought that I should probably clean up my Facebook for job applications. You know, not because I did crazy things. There's not like photos of me speeding. But uh, there are lots of embarrassing photos of me before I figured my hair out, before I started balding. And so I decided I would like go back in there and try and clean it up a little bit. And I found many things. One of the things I found was a photo I had somewhat forgotten about. Ashley, photo me blazer. I'll admit, uh, two of my later girlfriends are in this photo, but it's fine. Um, there was, you know, I was not, in case you can't tell from the I don't know everything about me, I was not really part of the party crowd in high school. Um, and so occasionally found myself with like more lonely time on my hands than I wanted. Also was fairly insecure. And so uh, one weekend I had been stuck inside for a while and I called my friend Stephen and I was like, hey, do you want to hang out? And uh, he was like, actually, Sarah's over, who is then girlfriend, now wife. I did their wedding. And um, I said, I don't care. I'll third wheel. I'll make you dinner. So I went over to Stephen's house, and I made the one meal I know how to make, penne pasta, white wine, Italian cream sauce, um, with a sweet Italian sausage, garlic bread, a lot of parsley. It's important you put more cream in than the recipe says because it makes for sauce. Anyway, so I went over and we brought a couple people over and we had this like dinner, which uh, was lots of fun. Did you have things like this when you were a teenager? You started to realize like things in adulthood were like fun somehow? You'd be like, let's go on a drive, which in eighth grade would have been weird. But now you're like, ah, very existentially romantic. And so we started to step somewhat into adulthood by doing what we called cook night. So like the first night of every break, We'd get together and we'd make a meal. And I had one friend whose grandfather had passed and left him like $1,000 that like spend it on your friends. So a group of, you know, snotty, skinny teenagers rolled into Sam's Club and bought $400 of filet mignon, bacon, and lobster. <laughs> and uh, we had this big meal. You can see the lobster. It did give two of the girls food poisoning. And I was kind of in charge of cooking the lobster. But not everybody got food poisoning, so I think it might have been them. Anyway, and so... You know, like, we listened to Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald and, like, took over this house and, like, didn't really get up to trouble, I suppose. And the point of this story is not that underage drinking is bad, though that is true for all of you Chi Alpha undergrads in the front. The point is um, that when you're somewhat <clears throat> of a lonely kid, somewhat, and you, you discover this space 
of like connection and fellowship and joy and so it is kind of amazing how much God knows what we need. And I know I should know that by now because he's omniscient, does all the time and whatever. But it is just kind of surprising, to me at least, the number of times I find myself in places. It's like I did not know that God, know, that God knew that I needed that. Put it that way. Um, the culture that we live in, I think, has a relatively thin way of talking about food. Food is basically about survival or like entertainment. You know what Soylent is? Like basically beige pancake batter that's like 40% of your nutrients in a day or something. We count that as a meal now. Like that's enough to get by. You should have to drink that if you're on the moon. But like people will do it at work so they can get back to the typing. I don't know what people do. And then we or we'll talk about food as its own entertainment. So uh, if you have friends who moved to L.A. and they're like, you never had tacos, but you've had them in L.A. Or if you, like, go to New York for a couple days, which I do this, I do do this, and you're there for, like, two days, and people are like, have you been to downtown sushi and wherever? And you're like, have you been to Blue Ribbon Sushi in Soho? And, like, the food, like, the food better, food competitive thing, which, like, totally misses the point. But, like, there, there's something that almost every other culture in basically all of human history has known I will hit this mic four times in this sermon. That is one. Happens every time. Can't explain it. And that, that food has, the way people eat together has a kind of spiritual significance, social spiritual significance. And that, that's the context in which Jesus ministered. A lot of times when people preach that, they make it sound like a quaint historical fact to make sense of the text. In the ancient world, there is a much more robust table culture than in our culture, blah, blah, blah. But I actually, I think they were right to know that, like, the table is this place where it's not just food and people. Like, a lot of stuff comes together. We're hungry for more than just food. And so what I'd like to do is take a look at one event in Jesus' life where he's at the table. Luke might have been something of a foodie. He writes 11 table scenes in his gospel, and he really cares about food and where people look. Very quirky guy, Luke. And um, I just thought I'd look at the first of the 11. Why not? And see what we find. So if you have a Bible or a smartphone, turn to Luke 5. Um, you don't have to, but you can if you want. Uh, one framing thought, and then we'll be off to the races. If you were to ask Jesus... Hey, buddy, what's your elevator pitch? Jesus would say the kingdom of God is so close. And there's a lot of important parts of Jesus' teaching, like the forgiveness of sins and the fact that he's God and Israel and all this stuff. But if you were like, you've got, you've got 30 seconds, boil it down, Jesus would say the kingdom of God is so close. And that's how all the gospel writers summarize his message. Famously, Mark 1.15 has, and he went around preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So if you, if you come to a place in Jesus' life, some event or some teaching, and you're looking for a way in, your best bet is to start off with, well, what might this tell us about the kingdom of God? So that's the lens I'm going to bring to this. It's my lens. I happen to think it's Jesus' lens, but that's what we're doing here. Okay, so Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27, goes like this. This is the English Standard Version for no particular reason, just that it's the best. After Jesus went out and saw, it, after, Je after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, Levi, sitting at a tax booth. 
And Jesus said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, uh, Levi rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I'm just going to make a couple observations and offer some historical context. I'm sure you also have observations about this. No particular order, but here's a couple thoughts. Um, Tax collectors. Tax collectors are in a weird position in the ancient world. So um, collecting taxes is a job that Romans don't want to do. They thought it was kind of like low class and somewhat beneath them. So they would outsource it to like individuals from the local population of wherever they had conquered. So they would uh, post this job, which it seems, it's a bit debated, but it seems like it may not have really had a salary. Like you collected taxes for Rome and then you also took some for yourself which puts you between a rock and a hard place, between the people you're collecting taxes from and the Roman occupiers. So obviously, everyone you grew up with in your town and in your region thinks you're a turncoat. And the Romans don't really want you around either. So you're stuck between a rock and a hard place, somewhat. And Jesus walks past this tax collector's booth, and he sees him, which is so simple. But boy, does it get me. Um, the other thing I noticed when I was cleaning up my snotty little Facebook um, was all of this, all of these statuses, dozens if not hundreds, that were about nothing. They were about nothing. They'd be like, in for the weekend, or like watching the Lord of the Rings, again, or, um, or I don't know, like off to Philly, I don't know. But the bottom line was, I, for a while reading them, I thought I was like, a young vocal narcissist or something. It's like, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> but the more I, and I did, I took them, I put them in a Word document. The more I collected out these Facebook stati, the more I thought, I, I really think 15-year-old me was trying not to look needy, which was not working, but just wanted someone to comment like, oh, me too. So it would be like, in for the weekend, I just wanted someone to go like, me too, let's hang out. Or, uh, you know, like, baking a cheesecake, which I did a lot of. And someone would go like, sounds great, I want some. I just wanted someone, uh, Kurt Thompson, therapist, he wrote the book, uh, The Anatomy of the Soul, has this phrase, every baby is born in the world looking for somebody looking for them. We're like hardwired for connection in this way. And there's Jesus sitting, there's Levi sitting in a tax collector's booth, resented on one side and uninvited on the other, and Jesus sees him and gives him the invite, come, why why don't you come follow me? Jesus looks for people. He just does. And so he invites Levi into the kingdom of God, and Levi responds by inviting Jesus to a party. So this is a thing that happened a lot. It's, It's a deep focus of Luke's gospel that Jesus would come to town and he would like throw dinner parties or people would throw them for him. And the guest list was everybody. There was a tradition uh, in Judaism of Jesus's day that's based on a couple of texts in the Old Testament that when God's Messiah came, 
he would throw this big banquet. Like God's action and history and society, they would like climax into this big dinner party. And for Christians, we have that at the end of the book of Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so Jesus went around taking that idea that God would throw this big banquet and making it literally true. He would throw banquets and he would invite people in. And it's one of the ways in which people started to think like maybe actually the kingdom of God has come because of the way Jesus throws parties. And so um, ancient banquets at this period have two kind of two courses. The one course is the, we, uh, we do this backwards. Their first course was the entrees. Their second course was the cocktails. So everyone would get food and you'd eat up. And if you think about it, smarter, no, they'd fill their tummies and then they would go um, to a room sometimes called the triclinium that had a big uh, kind of three-part U-shaped table. So when it says they reclined at table, this is what this is. You would lay on your left side. I'm not very flexible. You'd lay on your left side, and then you would eat with your right hand. So you're kind of like laying down. And um, it's the part of the meal where if you have like an honored guest, you know, Jesus, cough, cough, you can lay near him or next to him. You can just like ask him questions. So in the ancient world, this was the sort of like philosophical, we shall think big thoughts together kind of thing. So they fill their tummies, and they get a drink, and they all lay down. And then... um, the Pharisees and the scribes start asking a question. And the question they ask is like, why are all these other people here? Notice that Luke says that it's tax collectors and others. Luke says Levi invited his friends from work and other people he knew. And the Pharisees say, why are the tax collectors and the sinners here? Like, why is that? They, they like relabel them. So the Pharisees were kind of like pastors and the scribes were kind of like lawyers. Pharisees taught and interpreted texts. Scribes basically wrote contracts in alignment with the Torah. And so the, uh, the Pharisees, um, we tend to think of them as just like judgmental, angry people, which to a certain extent is true. But they had a key project. They were working on something. So the Pharisees were a group of Jews who believed, as lots of Jews did in this period, that the temple had been compromised like it wasn't really the real temple. It wasn't doing the real stuff. And so um, they thought, well, we need some way to continue to be God's people while the temple is defunct. And so they thought, maybe if we take the temple codes from Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, and we reapply them to our houses, what happens in the temple can happen in our home. The temple is where God lives. Maybe... If we rework our houses under temple code, if we do that exactly enough and holy enough, God will be pleased to dwell in our houses the way God dwells. They just want to be close to God, really, the Pharisees. They don't, I don't think they enjoy knocking people over. I think they really want to be invited to God's party. But they think the way to do that is to make sure you get all of the dirt off. So for them, we're going to make our houses holy, like the temple is holy, which means we need to do holy things in a holy way with holy people. And sinners and tax collectors don't really make the cut. And so they're looking at Jesus in the after-dinner Q&A session, and they're going, well, you, you you say you're about righteousness and holiness in the kingdom of God, 
then why did you bring the junk in? Doesn't that ruin the project, man? And, and so for all, the, what's actually happening is God incarnate is inviting people to a banquet where they can learn that they are accepted in God's kingdom, that they're like invited and called in, and the Pharisees think he's bringing in the riffraff. And so they say, why are the tax collectors and the sinners here? And Jesus's response is like so short and is such, I think, a deeply moving revelation of the heart of God. Jesus goes, it's not people who are well that need a doctor. I didn't call, I didn't come to call people who have it together. I came to call sinners to change their minds. The Pharisees see riffraff. They see bad people who do bad things. Jesus sees people in need, people who need something. God knows what we need. Repentance in the New Testament is literally a word that means sort of like turn, turn your mind, to change your mind. Uh, anybody else raised in kind of Pentecostal world? Repentance means you come to the front and you cry and you tell your, your core group leader everything you did bad for like the last two years, which you have probably told somebody before and you still feel bad about it anyway. So you come to the front and you cry and you promise I'll never do it again. And you have this big emotional overchange. And if you don't have the tears and you get like nauseous sad about what you've done, then it doesn't really count. But in the ancient world, in the world of the Bible, metanoia, repentance, really just means to become convinced of something else. And so Jesus says, I didn't come to get bad people to stop doing bad things. I came to convince the sinners that something else is going on. I think that's why he throws a dinner party. People will believe anything at a dinner party. I'm just kidding. Um, but Jesus creates a hospitable space of connection, of joy, of community, of fellowship, of giving people food, of welcoming them in, and then wants to share this idea with them. The kingdom of God is like so, it is so close, so close. And so I've come not to get the bad people to stop doing bad things. I've come to convince them that they're invited by God and to give them lives where they get to invite other people to. I think that's about seven observations on this text. I sort of lost track. But like, what part of this explosive little passage, so small that Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the Cost of Discipleship says it is baffling to reason, what part of that don't you want in your life? Right? Like Jesus goes around inviting people, and we all want to be invited. And he takes this tax collector who only has friends at work and other sinners, and he makes him the host of a party about God. And when Jesus looks at them, he doesn't see bad people who do bad things. He sees people in need, people who need him. It is really crazy how much God knows what we need. And the invitation of Jesus, I think, is both on this side of our deaths and on the other side of our deaths to live lives that are in the shape of that kingdom, of a party, a celebration where people connect with each other and know something about the truth of God. So here's like a couple thoughts I get for this. One, like invitation is key. Being inviters is like core to what it means to be Christian because we've also been invited. Or how about this? Like the shape of your social circle 
is how God demonstrates the gospel. Just a thought. I um, am getting old enough to no longer really believe in shock value in sermons or to like call people out and twist in the knife. But anybody who was not born today knows that the kind of lines in Jesus's day are also in the church in America. That there are people who look at other people and say they are a certain kind of person. And if you look at your own life, you may discover that you have perhaps unconsciously left a chunk of people out of who you are friends with, of who you're willing to invite, of who you're willing to bring with you. And I have no interest really in naming names or nailing you to the wall except to say that how you live your social life matters for how God tells the world that Jesus is the Messiah. And so if you buy into the kingdom of God, you would probably want to be thoughtful about that. Here's another one. God is so near. This whole story is about a group of people who think God is far off and they have to be holy enough to like get in his party, but the party is already there. And I just do think that human beings are built to connect with each other and with the God who made us. And in the kingdom of God, there's a party where you can have a meal, grab a drink, and sit next to God and ask him a couple questions. And if you recognize in yourself, if you either have or you recognize now, a desire to be near to the God who made you, why don't you try the kingdom of God? And the way in is just to really believe it's happening. Just change your mind. He's come to call people to repentance. Or here's like one more thought. Celebration also seems key. I am a single 27-year-old man. I have nothing to celebrate. I have no children. I have no anniversaries. I get one birthday. And I know many of us also feel this way, right? Singles Awareness Day comes every February. And so wouldn't you want to be part of a church that thought seriously about what you could celebrate in each other's lives. I have a very small budget for a very indulgent 30th birthday party. Do you know what I mean? Like people, there's more stuff in a human life to celebrate than a birthday and a wedding. Jesus thinks that him being in town is reason to throw a party, to let people know that something remarkable is happening. So what if you took on celebration as like a spiritual discipline? Like you thought the party you threw once every three months, why? Because the seasons have changed. Is an opportunity for people to meet and know the living God. I have uh, friends who are part of a church in New Haven, uh, up near Yale, and they would throw a, a, a 20s themed, wait, when did the depression happen? A 20s themed, I was there, uh, uh, party. They would kind of like the Gatsby and the dancing and the, and why? No particular reason, because parties are fun. But they would have the whole church gather together in prayer in the space for like the afternoon beforehand. Like people would be safe and have a swell time and they, they threw a party like the kingdom of God, like it mattered for them. How we live our social lives matters to God. Being an inviter is key. Celebration seems key. If you want to get near to God, why don't you try the kingdom? It's amazing how much the living God and Jesus Christ can kind of put into a party. And this, just as I was preparing to be with you today, just that thought, God knows what we need, kept coming back. 
the, the reason um, I was able to be in DC for half of my time in seminary is this couple, Dave and Kate. And I've talked about them before. They're in their 30s, they don't have kids, and they, um, they didn't charge me rent. I was there like three days a week. So I wanted to cook them a dinner that was nice enough that they wouldn't notice they weren't charging me rent. And so I, um, I made penne pasta and a white wine cream sauce with sweet Italian sausage and garlic bread. And so I, <laughs> I have one trick. Uh, I, you know, Dave is like a lumberjack. He's like a man and a half, and I'm like a half, maybe a third of a man. And then Kate is like a person. And so, but there's about three of us between us all. And I am not good at math, right? In theology, one is three and three is one. Of course, you're a math, better theologian. <laughs> and so I, but I'm sure I did it right. Like I can do simple math. So I made it, I, enough food for three people. We were going to have enough food for three. And so I, you know, kind of set it all out, a little mise en place. And uh, I heard this heavy-handed knock at the door. So Dave and Kate, when they got married, decided that their house where they lived would, like, reflect the kingdom of God. So it looks like somebody picked, like, a tornado picked a house up out of Madison County and dropped it on the Wicked Witch of the West across the Anacostia River in southeast D.C., kind of wraparound porch, big white house, gorgeous lovely fireplace. And you never know who you're going to meet there. Like, an ex-ambassador to the U.S. from Africa who was a political refugee was there the first time I went. Or like a Bible study, and they have an open-door policy for the neighborhood kids. Who, you know, usually want to, like, charge their phone and use the internet and, I don't know, play Fortnite. What do kids do? I don't know. And so, I'm there about to start cooking, and I hear, like, the big teenage boy fist knock at the door, and they come bursting in. And they go, uh, I said, hello, gentlemen. They go, are you making dinner, Peter? You know what that means, right? These are vacuums with arms. And so they come in, and I, I was, I would say peeved, but I thought they might leave by the time I was done cooking. So I said, well, do you want to help? And they said, sure. And so I look like Willy Wonka, and I've got, like, these kids from the neighborhood, like, chopping onions. And also, if you want a good time, take a very athletic, like, 13-year-old boy and have him hand whip whipped cream. It's, like, delicious because he feels very defeated by, like, a very simple task. And he's, like, good at basketball and good at baseball but can't really get this mode. Like, crazy, it's amazing. Anyway, so they took shifts on the whipped cream and they're chopping stuff and quartering strawberries because they made a saboyant. And they, um, they were about to sit down and then, like, a sister comes over with a younger sister and a cousin. And then the older kids who just finished football practice, like, these walruses roll into the kitchen and we're sitting around the table and, and there's the pasta and the garlic bread big bowl in the middle. And Dave and Kate sit down and they find all the kids in their house, which is no surprise. And um, Dave blesses the food and the hands that made it, all 30 of them, and blesses me. And we start eating. And I'm very nervous. I'm going to have to start paying rent. And I don't know how to tell you this. But, like, we ate the meal and there was, like, a quarter of the pasta left over. There was, like, enough for lunch the next day. I don't know. And I look at Kate. She's sitting across me at the table, and she mouths to me with one of the kids on her lap. She says, um, when, the, when the boys come over, there's always enough. We really can live lives that are in the shape of the kingdom of God, that invite people into a place because we have also been invited where we can find a God who knows what we need. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. Magic. I love that. Um, and as we close out, uh, if you'd stand, let's pray.
pray with me. Lord Jesus, uh, a lot of us are here because we believe that you are the one that God has sent to redeem the world. And we've had the experience of being invited into your kingdom and inviting others to come along with us. Some of us, you know, we're all at different spots, God. And so my prayer is just that as we respond in worship and as we live out the rest of our week, that either when we have some free mental time or by the interruption of your Holy Spirit, you would lead us to see more clearly and love more deeply the places where we have been invited in, the places where we can invite others, and the big party that is the kingdom of God where there is always enough because you know what we need. We pray that our lives would be like that because of what we decide, but also just because you're at work in and through us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and in the presence of the Spirit. Amen.